Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. One of the most frustrating things in history of podcasting is the twofold accusation that number one, podcasting is useless because it provides no income or practical utility for those that might listen in, if indeed anyone actually does. This accusation is easily debunked once I point to everything you guys and this podcast has done for me and how much I owe to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. But I want to talk more about the other aspect of the question. You see, the second accusation is one I'm sure we've all been made familiar with, whether we have studied this discipline, maintained a casual interest, or even if we've reached the pinnacle of our career in that school. I am, of course, referring to the question, why history? Why study it? What's the point in it? And why should we care about it? Being some of the most familiar questions, often levelled at those that call history their passion or even profession. Well, since we're about to dive headlong into this very special project, I thought it would be useful to you guys to know my thoughts on why history. By the end of this, I hope you'll feel confident, not merely in the fact that history is very much a critical part of helping us to understand who we are as human beings, but that history is personally rewarding, rich with grand tales and filled with incredible mysteries just waiting to be untangled. So how am I going to tackle something like this? How am I going to answer the question of why one should study history? Well, here's how I see the structure of this episode going. I'm going to divide this episode into, first, the arguments that people generally use against history, followed, of course, by the reasons why I believe history is important, 
concluding with a straight-up justification for why both history and history podcasting are critical in modern times, accompanied by my own thanks and unique way of concluding difficult-to-define episodes such as these. Sounds straightforward enough, doesn't it? I don't want this episode to come across either as a smug or super dry academic installment, and the general aim is to really talk up history and emphasise why we all love it so much. Odds are, if you're listening to this podcast, you're someone that enjoys history. And since When Diplomacy Fails is where history thrives, as our unofficial, official motto is becoming, I thought it was only right that we come to its defence. It should also be said that some of these arguments here may never even have occurred to you. What I mean by that is, if you're someone that loves history, if you're someone that feels passionate about it, then it's unlikely you've ever concerned yourself too much with the question of why it's useful or why it's necessary. You may have been confronted with the question, but if you're like me, you've always felt reassured that history was something worthwhile and important as a discipline, or as an interest, or as a hobby, even if you weren't necessarily always sure why that was the case. After listening to me today, I hope you'll feel personally assured that history is one of the most important schools to invest in, but that even if you didn't need such assurances yourself, you'll feel equipped to use them next time someone claims history is an altogether pointless subject. If you're ready, then let's begin. The first argument used against the study of history is that it is not useful. It has no utility because you will not use it in your daily life as you would a language. On the surface, the verdict appears a bit grim. To put it in perspective, if you were to put why study dot 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 into Google, what do you imagine is the first suggested result you'll get? It's not law, science, or even astronomy, but history, Google says providing you with ample evidence that someone has both thought such a question before and asked the fountain of wisdom that is Google for help with the answer. In many ways, such a question is one that doesn't need to be answered. What, for example, makes history any less useful than any of those aforementioned disciplines? What makes history somehow wasteful of your time when it's considered perfectly acceptable to study astronomy or physics without putting such subjects to practical use? Very few of us will become spacemen, and yet some are so drawn into the ins and outs of the solar system that they manage to learn intricate details about planets and galaxies that they'll never actually see. Some of my friends know so much about football teams, who plays for them and who is worth what on any given day, that I often wonder how or what such information could ever be used for. Similarly, I remember, well, important dates and names in professional wrestling, and I remember the names of wrestling moves, and I maintain a serious interest in that art form, even while, obviously, I'm never going to become a pro wrestler. To demand an accountant-style audit of the instant usefulness of every subject in our lives isn't just a crude model of education. It's also inherently unrealistic when you break it down, because... It implies that people learn only very specific things for very specific purposes. But let's take it to another level. What's the point in studying French? To me, French is something I will eventually 
have to learn because so many documents and letters in the 19th century were written in French, and in order to get ahead as a historian, one has to be fluent or at the very least handy with written French if you're going to study basically any era before the 20th century in much detail. Yet, take the average Joe on the street who really enjoys French. Maybe they even listen to one of those underrated Learn French by Podcast programs, and maybe they educate themselves to the point that they could hold their own with someone that studies the language on a deeper level in university. What's the point in that? Do they want to go to France? No, says Joe, I just enjoy learning the language. Do they want to read French books or plays or delve into the innermost thoughts of 19th century French philosophers? Gross, says Joe. Just leave me alone and let me learn the French language in peace. Is Joe wasting his time with French then? Shouldn't he be doing something more worthwhile with it? No, you'd say. Having a second language at any level is a useful skill to have. Is it though? Considering that Joe will never use it in his professional life and his job doesn't pay enough to enable him to take that trip to France, which he's always wanted to take... But then go one better. Say Joe got a raise and made that trip to Paris, and say he was able to converse with the French people, sit in that cafe near the Eiffel Tower, pay eight euro for an espresso, and think to himself, ah, this is the life. Is Joe still wasting his time? Well, Joe, I would argue, whether he travels to France or not, is learning something because it profoundly interests him. And that, I would argue, was worth pursuing. So, how does this relate to history? Well, although on the surface French may not appear comparable to the study of history, think about it for a second. French is something which only people that speak French will truly appreciate. Similarly, by going to France, Joe will be able to practice his French, as the history enthusiast will be able to share his facts and talk about his favourite eras in history when he is around like-minded history enthusiasts, or when he studies it in college, or when he tells his kids about it, or when he joins the History Podcasts Facebook group, or when he listens and can keep up with a history podcast because of the background knowledge he already has. John, who loves history, may never even put his interest in history to practical use. But if, like French-loving Joe, he is improved and made a better, more learned person because of his new knowledge, then is that not worth pursuing? Those that claim French is more useful than history, in a way they could be right. I mean, I can't go to France and speak history to the French people, but then again I have no real interest to go to France and speak French. Similarly, Joe, who speaks French, will find himself out of his depth if he picks up a history magazine, listens to a history podcast, takes a history course, or simply leans in a conversation about history between his mates. If you believe that both John and Joe are entitled to pursue their own interests and do their own thing, a fair enough entitlement, I think you'll agree, then surely history is just as much value as learning French. Whether anyone will ever be fluent in history is debatable, but consider the fact that it makes John profoundly happy to learn history and spread his knowledge amongst his friends, maybe even giving them a badge or two. Does it still not hold worth, then? When French-loving Joe learns the French language, he in many ways has to learn a bit of French history as well, and this ties into a later point I have that history is inescapable within every discipline we may study. You just can't separate the past from the present so handily, or argue that because you're studying French, you'll never need to know a jot about history. Not even French-loving Joe would argue that you can segregate the two subjects into different rooms. The etymology of French, how it evolved as a language over the centuries, massively helps the speaker understand it. 
French didn't just arrive in the world of languages, it had to get here through a complex linguistic path, which wasn't always straightforward and didn't always make sense. Well, maybe you don't care though, and maybe you can just ignore those aspects of French that are rooted in history, and which define it and distinguish it from other languages. But if you do that, you're missing out on vast opportunities to fully immerse yourself in the language. To connect our two examples, Joe would have a far better time learning French if he talked to his friend John about where the French language came from, how the French people developed it, what the significance of the language was, and what some of the unique aspects of the language are. John might not know all the answers, but he'd be very willing to learn and help Joe out. Through this, both gain because they gain knowledge, and they flesh out their already existing knowledge by benefiting from what the other person knows. How can that be anything other than good? The second argument normally used to discredit the study of history is that age-old criticism that history is boring. I can't stand history, I'm sure you've heard people say. It's just a load of dates and facts which are just so boring and dry to me. The image of dusty history books, read by bespeckled weirdos wearing even weirder jumpers, is one which I had even before I went to college. The overwhelming problem is how history is taught to us from an early stage. We are tested on dates, on figures, or on facts, and then convinced that these are the most important aspects of the discipline. We're prevented from thinking for ourselves, and within our essays come exam time, we're told to be sure to list out the required rehearsed arguments and be sure to remember to cite this or that author for his groundbreaking new way of looking at things. Then we recite what we remember, we forget some things but are proud that we remembered others. We get our C+, and feel happy that this memory game worked well for us this time around. There's so much wrong with this picture, yet for so many of us this has been our experience with history, and studying history, at least before we went to college. For some even more unfortunate people, this is their experience of studying history in college as well. I shouldn't have to tell you that there is so much more to history than facts, dates, and the names of certain kings. History, as we all know, is about context. I could tell you straight up right now, just off the top of my head, that in 1665, Britain made war on the Dutch Republic for the second time in the 17th century. You could go into an exam, write 1665 as the answer, and get an A. But you'd be no close to unravelling actual history than the guy who got the question wrong. Rather than being so focused on the answer, I wish the curriculum would actually teach us the importance of the question. For example, why did Charles II decide it was a good idea to make war on the Dutch in 1665? To answer this, we have to examine not merely the political situation that Britain and the Dutch existed within, but also the stance of Charles II, his regime and his subjects. We have to see what each side hoped to gain, and perhaps even get to grips with how those powers outside of Charles's immediate horizons felt about the whole endeavour. This is history, and hopefully you'll agree that such a question as that, rather than the answer 1665, is far more rewarding, revealing, and interesting than a date. A date, other than the actual date itself, tells us nothing. If you look at the 20th century and are asked to remember the dates of the ten most important things that happened therein, with no context, background, or other information to support your memory game, how successful might you be? What if instead of ten impersonal dates, you had to remember ten detailed stories about human sacrifice, betrayal, and endurance, and triumph? 
What if instead of 1914, 1929, 1939, 1954, etc., you had to remember the concerns of the powers involved in the July crisis? On the surface, you may think that activity sounds impossible, and maybe it is just me, but I find myself much more able to remember what on the surface looks like a complicated series of human interactions when I'm actually drawn into the story in the first place. See, you'd never have drawn me into the Thirty Years' War by telling me it began in 1618 and ended in 1648, because okay, that's grand, but it's not a great story. Yet, if you'd told me that the war is essentially split into different phases of foreign intervention, that the Habsburgs reigned supreme, that the Danes, the Swedes, the French and the Dutch all waged their separate but then unified campaigns against the Habsburgs, then I'd be a bit more interested. If you told me that the King of Sweden conquered his way down into Germany and played tennis on the Elector of Bavaria's exclusive tennis court, then I demand you tell me the story right away. There is so much more to history than dates, facts and blandly represented figures. Those that believe otherwise or claim that the entire school of history is boring, and I'm talking the entire stretch of history and everything from Hannibal marching over the Alps with elephants to Bismarck unifying Germany under Prussia to Polish Assars saving Western civilization at the last siege of Vienna. Are you telling me that nothing in those thousands of years of recorded history appeals to you on any kind of level? Taken alone, we've already come across so many events and incidents which could be valid movie material. So when someone says to me, and they often do, you'd be surprised to learn, that history is boring, I'm, I pity them, because obviously they've never taken the opportunity to see whether there was a story behind those dates, facts, or bland figures. If they are reluctant, I normally take the opportunity to tell them an interesting story. Did you know the Dutch flooded their lands so that the French couldn't conquer them? To some people, this story isn't important, because it isn't happening now and it's not relevant. And that's another topic for discussion. But something which I had to accept early on is that some people will be drawn in by a great and incredible story, and others just won't. Those that generally weren't interested in history to begin with won't be drawn in, and that's fine. I'm obviously not saying that everyone has to like history, even though I don't understand the people that don't. I'm just kidding. What I am saying is that those who do enjoy it, slash obsess over it, have every right to do so, because it is profoundly interesting, fascinating, and in many cases entertaining. Put it another way, even if you can remember those 10 important dates of the 20th century, you don't truly know anything. You might be able to remember those dates, but they don't mean anything to you, do they? You need not only to remember them, but to understand them. Information by itself isn't knowledge. French-loving Joe comes to mind again. If Joe can remember all the past and present tenses in the French language, well, that's great and all, but if you can't link them back into the French language, then what is the actual point? If aliens arrived tomorrow and requested information about our cultures and past so that they could better understand us, would we hand them a list of key dates and just wave them on their way? Of course not. We'd elaborate, hand them surveys of the period that shed important light on key events and figures, hand them the historical debates, primary sources, manuscripts, diaries, memoirs, etc., and make those events relatable and interesting by explaining what happened and why, concluding with how it shaped us into who we are today. On top of this, by delving into such studies made by historians, we can acquaint ourselves better with their arguments, their theories, and the events which they believe hold profound significance. 
By reading the source material ourselves, we can then debate with them, develop our own theories and provide our own narratives. These are all critical thinking exercises and they bring me to my next argument quite neatly. So the third argument people normally use when arguing against history will generally go something like this. History isn't really all that useful by itself, but it does teach important critical thinking methods. Or, my all-time favourite cop-out, transferable skills. All too often when people debate what the point in studying history is, as one of their talking points, they'll point proudly to the transferable skills, sometimes to such an extent that history is almost presented less as a discipline and more as a vehicle for learning those skills before you promptly abandon the history vehicle and apply these newly learned skills to other more important subjects. You'd be surprised how much such an idea is inferred by the explanation given for studying history. Of course, it is true that history does inculcate profoundly important skills that teach you how to investigate and debate ideas and theories cultivated by this historian or that, and it takes an underrated amount of attention to detail as well as general human attention itself to read, like primary source manuscripts and diaries and that kind of thing, and get to the bottom of the people that wrote them. All of this. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com compels us to look and think for ourselves, and no one would deny that these are important attributes for any student or professional to learn, and I would also argue that few subjects teach a person how to engage these skills more effectively than history. At the same time, though, I resent the idea of history being used purely as a vehicle for these skills. The idea that history can be sucked dry of its usefulness as students develop their skills before moving on to bigger and better things is a familiar one, and historians are often guilty of turning to it too often to justify what they do. To me, though, the reason I study history and the reason why it always draws me in is because it provides me with an invaluable long-term perspective on the human experience and human beings in general, which I just wouldn't get anywhere else. 
The component skills which make up history are, of course, an important part of what makes history important, but skills, much like facts, aren't the primary justification for history as a discipline. Okay then, the cynic would argue, history is not useless, and maybe it gives us a perspective on what people are like and how they got to be like that. But what if I just don't care? What if I decide that history is useless because I don't need to know any of that stuff? It just isn't important to me, and it shouldn't be to you, because although it provides insights into the human condition, and sometimes into the origins of our civilization, such insights are optional extras, and there is no actual practical use for knowing them. This condescending dismissal of history is actually surprisingly rampant in the undercurrent of modern-day thinking. Those that may not necessarily discredit history, but argue that it isn't essential as a school subject, that it's merely a nice extracurricular set of ideas, which don't have to be absorbed for human beings to function in their day-to-day lives. To this, I would argue passionately that we need to know where we came from. Well, the cynic would ask, since we are here now, what's the point in understanding the how or why? To this, I would borrow a term used by one of the sources for this episode, an article by a lady called Penelope Corfield, who attempted to answer this very question I'm addressing now. The term Corfield used was rootless, and to me this makes the most sense in light of the argument. If we disconnect ourselves from the past by failing to teach history properly or by discounting it as an extracurricular subject, we immediately distinguish between what is and what isn't important. That history is nice as a coat of paint to apply to knowledge, but that it holds no actual relevance and can therefore be ignored. That's a dangerous idea. That kids have enough to think about and learn, so we shouldn't be bothering them with it. That more important facts exist for them to engage with and debate than things that happened 300 years ago. In Penelope Corfield's words, Viewing the subject as an optional extra to add cultural gloss seriously underrates the foundational role for human awareness that is derived from understanding the past and its legacies. By removing history from the discourse between adults as much as from kids, or by looking down on it as somehow quaint, but an otherwise ignorable subject, we cover up much of what makes us human, because we increase what Corfield called rootlessness in our society. What this means is essentially that by taking out the origins of the human story, by covering up the processes or ignoring the rich personal journeys that brought human beings to this date in the timeline, we strip away our identity and we do a great disservice to human achievement at the same time, not to mention human sacrifice, triumph, joy, grief, compassion, defiance, and so many other displays of these qualities and emotions by human beings of good or bad tendencies throughout history. Qualities which above all make us human, which connect us to the countries we live in and give us roots that in turn provide us with an identity as a citizen or as an individual. A rootless society will be less concerned with its past, it'll be less connected to its past, so it'll be less able to decide where to go next, and less prepared for life, having after all no examples of others that have come before, or of the dangers that have been encountered and overcome. They are disconnected from it, so they are unable to learn from it. Because they don't learn from it, they are destined to make the same hideous mistakes which have been made before. Not only that, but those unfamiliar with history will make sweeping and inaccurate statements which can be used as political capital to the detriment of certain peoples or minorities. Now I'm not saying that a lack of historical awareness 
always leads to Adolf Hitler. But look at it this way. What dictatorship can you think of that accurately portrayed the historical realities of the country to its people? Now try to think of the countless regimes that got to their heights of power by manipulating this reality, by creating their own interpretation of history and presenting that as fact. Again, this isn't to say that we should learn history to prevent dictatorships, but dictatorships on such regimes thrive in societies that have little sense of direction to begin with. In a society that feels as though it needs to be provided with a future because it's devoid of a historical identity, so it can't reach into its past to connect its people to the present day. That's why you'll often see the Nazis referred to as a warning from history. Yet, the age-old cliché of those that fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it is not the only thing you can take from this. Imagine if your teachers had taught you the school of history as you now understand and hopefully enjoy it. Imagine if instead of giving up on history or presenting it as a nice little extra thing to do in your spare time, educational institutions used the expertise they had to find better and more engaging ways to teach the subject. Unless this is done, history will always be viewed as this optional extra. A nice thing to look into for sure, but not something necessary for our daily lives. Not practically useful like maths or fundamental to human interaction like a language. Of course, people today will never identify with the subject if they're never introduced to history as a discipline worthy of their time. If history is always facts and figures, then these can be pushed to the side if they're of no practical or immediate utility. That brings me to my point that the fundamental issue I have with this view of history is that it tries to be put into a box when, in reality, as we've already gathered, history can't be put into a box because history is inescapable. How inescapable, you may be wondering? Well, now that I've tackled the most glaring stones that people normally throw at history, I'd like to conclude by providing you with the next major argument I have in defense of history just in general. So let's begin. History can be loosely defined as the study of the past, yet as we know, there is much more to it than that. What we often take for granted about history is that it regularly seeps into other subjects or disciplines. It's not for nothing that my university offered a history of medicine course. This was one critical aspect of history which students who were not about to become doctors could study, but to suggest that doctors themselves, on the other hand, don't need to be aware of that past, of great ideas or discoveries which came before them, or of the giants in the medical profession which they now occupy the shoulders of, is to discredit so much those developments and discoveries which founded modern medical thought in its present form. Think of how medicine was once practiced, how bleeding was once thought essential to rid the body of harmful bile. Doctors today may not directly study such examples, and they may seek to avoid looking into that weird era of human experimentation altogether, but those that wish to build upon the modern foundations of medicine need to begin by looking at those foundations in the first place. Take Alexander Fleming, for example, the famous Scottish scientist who discovered penicillin and modern antibiotics. Did he ignore the historical experiences of his teachers or supervisors? Well, of course he didn't. Fleming developed upon the historical knowledge of medicine, which was built up over time, the so-called bank or storehouse of information, which provided context to his field of study. Medicine thus developed thanks to history, but it is far from the only profession to benefit from it. 
A quick look at law, in particular if we are to examine constitutional aspects of the laws which define our country, provides rich examples as to our respective homelands grounding in history, but constitutions are far from the only legal devices that can be sourced from history. A history of animals and the classification of different species which zoologists advance, of the increase in knowledge thanks to advancements in physics and the world around us, of the latest military theories taught in military academies or schools, of the developments of countries and their makeup through geographers, all of these are subjects which borrow and build upon historical knowledge and discoveries to advance their schools of thought. Not a single one of them could exist today without developing over history as they did, and no professional or expert in any one of these fields would consider himself a professional or expert without first understanding why and how his chosen field of study brought him or her to this point in time. History is the only discipline that provides this background, this context, and this detail. It is the only subject which has so many fingers and so many pies, and yet even as we and many others know this, we are asked what the point in history is. The point of history is that humanity couldn't survive without it. Obviously, in a practical sense this is true, because we can't just poof ourselves into the current time, and professionals and experts etc. can't just acquire the knowledge they need instantaneously. But imagine it another way. A world without looking into the past. A world without subjects that have roots in history. A world without the legacies of discovery, or the rich human tales of triumph and joy in a given field. Legal experts would look to cases where, for example, discriminatory laws were first challenged, and how those victories brought us to the present state of modernity in law. Doctors could point to aforementioned penicillin discoveries, and how much modern medicine depends upon that development for the understanding and treatment of disease today. Engineers know what works and what doesn't, because they have read books written by those that have come before them, and they've made grand technical marvels in engineering a reality, knowledge they can build upon, often literally, to advance their profession and find further ways to improve the human experience. So history is in many ways the great lender of human thought and learning. In many ways it's so involved in everything we do and it so grounds what we study that it's hard to imagine life without it and it's impossible to argue against its use. History is unignorable because it is everywhere and it is everywhere because it provides inspiration, identity and context to even some of the most mundane of activities for the simple fact that if nothing else, someone has likely been here before in your line of inquiry and odds are you can learn something from what they've done. Borrowing from past knowledge isn't as simple as acknowledging the fact that we consistently stand on the shoulders of giants. The truly exciting thing about history, guys, is that it helps us understand who those giants actually were why they did what they did, and what makes them a giant in the first place. When you reach that point, you're crossing into the kind of territory that tells human sagas, personal anecdotes, rich experiences, and emotional tales, the kind of gems that don't settle for mere names, dates, or bland figures, but which put flesh on the bones of these people and their lives, that bring them out of the pages of history, and into our brains and hearts. That is the end goal of any historian worth his salt. And a further related goal is to tell the story of that person, or event, or what have you, and recount it in such a way that it becomes important, relatable, and engaging to the student, listener, enthusiastic, 
skeptic or history nerd. It's not always an easy task, and it's not always successful either, but it is worthwhile because on those occasions that success comes to the historian and the story is brought out in such a way that he or she knows the target audience has been drawn in, educated or identified with the person, event or story in question, it means that said audience is reconnecting with their roots. The victories, losses, depressions, controversies, struggles or triumphs that make us human and give context to our lives, that shape our societies, excite our passions, stoke our debates or just give us something to talk about. There's profound value in these things and without any of them we'd be less human, less contented, less grounded and less confident of where we are to go next. Leo Tolstoy once said that history would be a great thing if only it were true But however we interpret history, whatever we feel or don't feel about it, there is no getting away from it. History cannot be bland because people by their very nature are not and were not bland. They possessed foibles and weaknesses which make them relatable and which we can learn from. They succeeded or failed for reasons which teach us much about the human condition. They were happy, they were sad, they endured, or they excelled in circumstances and in situations that passed on a legacy to us, whether we recognise that legacy or not. So history is, and always has been, a fundamental building block of humanity. However far back you go, whatever questions or mysteries or revelations that come out from its study, history can't be separated from us, because whether we hate history, love history, or, in my case, obsess over history, every one of us will make history. And some of these stories that we produce, someday may become the subject of a willing student, eager to discover what we ourselves learned and what we can teach them. Thus we pass on our experiences, our perspectives, our struggles and triumphs, and the understanding that these make up a wider story of how and why. This story is the essence of who we are as human beings, and whether we acknowledge it or not, it is an essence we cannot endure without. Good thing there will always be people like you guys to listen, and there will always be nerds, enthusiasts, students, professionals, or otherwise to teach. Because teaching history is one thing, but bringing it out of its box, breathing life into it through words, exercises, or expressions, that is what makes a great teacher, and that is the environment you have to build if you want to teach history yourself, or even to try and learn it. It's so much more than knowing dates, than knowing facts, figures, personalities, It's not enough and it doesn't do history justice to point to the skills that it taught you, impressive as they are, or the identity that it rooted within you, important as that is, or the research methods it inculcated within your learning practice, whatever results they might have produced. It is so much more than dry, dusty books, and it's far too valuable to discount or cynically ignore while in search of a better, more tangible subject to study. Look around you. History is everywhere, and it's not defined merely by the subject or genre which says, from this point history, after this point no more history. I see history everywhere. That's why I love to podcast about it, that's why it's in my brain for most of my waking moments, and it's why I'll take anyone to task if they claim it's pointless to study. A strong argument is often made of the need to learn from history, and how in today's world affairs are in such a state that nationalism, xenophobia and extremism are on the rise, and how populism is more popular now than it has been in living memory. These developments are not merely the result of events rooted in our recent historical experiences, they are also ample fodder for future generations, who will look back to us and ask why we did what we did, 
why we believed in the people we elected and how we justified our actions. In a sense, I feel we've almost lost this self-awareness that our ancestors had, especially as my generation in particular seems to think that they can answer to no one. Yet they do. They have to answer to the historians, to the pupils, to the enthusiasts, and yes, to the nerds, who will one day examine our experiences and stories. Our lives will, by then, merely be a spoke on the wheel of human history. But each spoke will be a critical spoke, if we're truly to understand what makes that wheel rotate, as it does. Why some spokes appear different to others, and which particular spokes we have still yet to find. So this is when diplomacy fails. This is the place where incredible characters are brought out of the pages of books you may not otherwise read, where conflicts and struggles you never heard of in school take hours in the telling, and where we give our take on sometimes great and sometimes terrible events. In the grand scheme of things, perhaps it isn't much, but if it is something you enjoy, if it furthers not simply your knowledge but your understanding, if it provides you with an appreciation for times gone by, and a desire to wrap your head around more, then I've done my duty. I have done it, and I have thoroughly enjoyed myself at the same time, because this isn't a dry or dusty book. It's a podcast, which, well, granted you can put down at any time, but it's also a tale, a long-running tale that dips into many examples and events and characters, and it contains real-life examples and characters and events that we can definitely learn from, even as we are fascinated or appalled by the people or incidents that populate the stories I tell. Above all, this is history. It is history that lives and endures hundreds of years after it occurred, and it is history that is still absolutely worth telling. So this is when diplomacy fails, and this is where history thrives. Why? Well, because where history thrives, so do we. So yeah, that's my apology, my defence, my argument in favour of this crazy discipline we call history. I love it, guys. You might not have known that, but I really do. It's my passion and my hobby, and hopefully in time, it's going to be my career as well. Until then, though, I am, as I always have been, and, well, for five years anyway, and as I hope to be well into the future, your humble history podcaster and host. This is When Diplomacy Fails podcast, and you are so welcome to our fifth birthday party. It's been a long time and it's coming, and you've all been so patient in your waiting. So thanks for listening. My name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 